Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Those who participate in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. I'm joined today by Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John, as we, Lord willing, conclude our look at the book of James. And as always, if you have not yet uh, picked up Jeff Meyer's commentary on this book. We have a link in the show notes uh, for you to help you out with that. Today, we'll be looking at James 5, verses 13 through 20. And to begin, I'll, I'll actually just read that whole passage. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So James here begins to wind down his letter and in doing so gives his readers uh, some general exhortations. um, And these are, again, given to these persecuted Jewish Christians. We as believers live in a real uh, fallen world and uh, with all of its highs and lows. And James here is encouraging these Christians to live in community with one another through these different life circumstances. It's clear through the book of James and the rest of the New Testament that uh, God's kingdom and the gospel, these things don't make us insular, uh, but the gospel and the kingdom calls us to one another, calls us to live life together. So perhaps we could Uh, begin this discussion of this passage by having uh, you, Jeff, remind us again of the context of this book and how how that context uh, bears upon this passage, how this passage fits into that that world. So we have a conclusion here that fits with the rest of the book, I believe. Um, Remember, the book began with an exhortation to patience and endurance and steadfastness under trial. And we understand the trial to be related to their exile from Jerusalem and their their, uh, being pursued, persecuted by the Jewish leaders. Um, And this has, uh, you know, led to certain temptations in these uh, groups, these uh, communities of Christians, temptations uh, uh, to be impatient. Uh, temptations to strike back even, uh, and angry words produce, you know, zealotry and, and all the things we've talked about so far. So at the end here, um, James seems to focus in mostly on those that are suffering, um, those that are sick, uh, and the communal response, the community leader's response to that with prayer and anointing, um, and then the Lord's faithfulness to the suffering one. Now, the the suffering and the sickness here in verse 14 um, 
I don't think that it's so specific as to refer to those who might have been injured or might have suffered wounds um, at the hands either of their persecutors or possibly as a result of their own aggressive, violent behavior. But that's certainly possible here. This uh, word that James uses for sick, uh, S, the nao, um, can describe physical illness or weakness, but it also is used by the Apostle Paul in his list of what he suffered from his persecutors in 2 Corinthians 12. So um, it the language is, I think, intentionally broad to include all sorts of sickness, but it's certainly possible here that the folks here that are calling for the elders of the church have maybe been involved in sinful misbehavior, the kind that James has been talking about. And so elders of the church come, they pray over him, uh, they lead him in a confession of his sin, uh, and then there's a promise of forgiveness offered there as well. Again, I'm not saying that that is the only thing going on here, but it's certainly possible and it makes a lot of sense given the context of the book as we've been talking about it. I was wondering as I was um, looking at this passage, whether or not we're meant to see a kind of a sharp break between verse 12 here of chapter five and what follows in 13, or whether we're to see some sort of continuity um, in terms of immediately what's gone before it. And, you know, I'd be, be keen to, to know what you think of this, but I wonder if verse seven onwards here is the exhortation, you know, to be patient rather than trying to get justice in your own means to wait for the Lord, to wait for the uh, Lord's timing, the early and late rains and so forth. Um, and I'm wondering if kind of 13 onwards is almost kind of about maintaining your faith in the meantime and dealing with the the problems of the present things like sickness suffering um the lack of rain a sinner wandering away verse 19 onwards um i, I wonder if it's kind of yeah trying to encourage people not to fall away not to give up in in the meantime i, I was looking before we um logged on today at luke um 18 and the start the parable of the persistent widow and, and here is this woman kind of rising up um uh, pleading and um it ends here hear what the unrighteous judge says will not god give justice to his elect who cried him day and night will he de delay long over them um and the answer is i'll tell you he will give them justice speedily nevertheless when the son of man comes will he find faith on the earth uh, as if to suggest that in the meantime as as the cries go up there's there's a real tendency just to give up just to think justice is is never going to come and, and fall away from the faith and i wonder if there's um something to that just in in the flow of of the close of james here i think that's helpful um Note also here that uh, we've talked about Job and his patience, and now we're talking about Elijah uh, in prayer and his 
him having a like nature as ours, praying fervently that it might not rain. I, again, I, it's, it, you know, referring to Elijah as an exemplar for leaders, for prayer, for action, his situation is remarkably similar to their own. So James, uh, the readers that James is addressing, like Elijah, suffer under the rule of apostate leaders in Israel. Ahab and Jezebel. And then also, like early Christians, Elijah is forced to go into hiding because of the persecution of those leaders, and he has to run for his life. And instead of beginning an insurrectionist movement um, to bring down the ungodly leadership in Israel, he patiently ministers to the widow in Zarephath, providing food for her and healing her son. So uh, Elijah pleads with God for healing for his nation. Because of his prayers, the rain stops and then returns and brings with it the fruit of the earth. Again, we think we think of the harvest of righteousness as promised at the end of James chapter 3. So um, I think Elijah is referenced here because it fits with their context. His life is a paradigm for this new Israel that James addresses. Um, they are to suffer as Elijah suffered, embrace his patience, his care for the poor in the face of persecution, and to pray as he prayed, and to trust that God will answer those prayers uh, as he answered Elijah's prayers. So I think that that reference to Elijah connects us up to the specific issues and context of the readers that James is addressing. I think the point that you've stressed at various points in our discussion about the background and the impulse towards zealotry within the audience that James is writing to, Jeff, can be helpful to consider. It can be helpful to consider that when reflecting upon these verses, because a lot of James' message to some of those people might leave them with the question, are we just supposed to be passive to let this go, to do nothing about it? And James's answer here is no. Um, you have the power of prayer. Give yourself to that. And that is a power that is immense when you understand it properly. And so prayer is the response to so many of the different situations that they might find themselves in in the interim. And so they can hold on because, in part, it's easier to hold on when you're not being passive, when you're not just letting things happen and throwing up your hands. Um, as he talks about the response to suffering, um, it's prayer. If you're cheerful, praise, which can be another form of prayer. If it's a case of sickness, again, you can have prayer over that person who's sick and prayer for forgiveness, prayer for the person who's struggling or falling away, and then prayer for judgment. It's always interesting to um, see some of the ways in which other tellings of various stories that we're familiar with in scripture can shed a different light upon them. And here I think there's a, a light being shed upon the story of Elijah and the kingdom under Ahab, because in the story of First Kings, it does not explicitly say that Elijah prayed for the cessation of rain. And Elijah just comes onto the scene out of nowhere and there are ways that you can read between the lines and recognize this is Elijah actually 
taking the initiative in some sense. And he's prayed for this. He's sought this rain. This is not just something that he's the messenger boy uh, about. He's someone who, as a faithful prophet, has prayed for the sanction of the covenant to be brought upon the people after they've committed these key acts. And so Elijah comes on the scene immediately after the rebuilding of Jericho and the description of Ahab and Jezebel's compromise and their idolatry with Asherah and other things like that. And he, as a faithful prophet of the Lord, does not merely bear the message of the Lord. He participates in the Lord's council. And in that council, he prays and he seeks this judgment, which is declared within the covenant, doc covenant document that it would be brought upon the people, that there would be no rain. And that is an encouragement to people who faced with the sort of persecution that they're facing may feel powerless, but yet they have the same power as Elijah did as they come before the Lord and as they seek the justice of the Lord upon their adversaries, they, like the persistent widow, can be vindicated. Alistair, are you making a distinction there between kind of what's prayed and what's prophesied? So Elijah, as soon as he turns up, doesn't he, um, says, uh, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So are you seeing that as him? Uh, what's the point you're making that he kind of declares it but doesn't pray for it or something? What I'm saying is that within the context of First Kings, it's not immediately obvious that this is something that Elijah himself has prayed for that what he's declaring is a judgment that is in response to his petition to the Lord, which is what is suggested here in James. And elsewhere, we do see Elijah, as it were, taking something of a prophetic initiative, that he's not merely um, reporting the Lord's sanction, but he's petitioned the Lord to enact his sanction. And when he brings the declaration of that sanction, he's declaring something that is a response to his prayers for judgment. Okay, good, gotcha, yep. Yeah, there's, there's power in that prayer. There's also power that these people need to appreciate in the community. So there's, there's an emphasis here on um, the elders of the church coming and praying and then confessing your sins to one another and praying for one another. And then at the end, uh, this uh, rescuing uh, anyone who wanders uh, and bringing him back. And apparently, if you read the rest of the the uh, the letter, uh, the community was being misdirected and, and ordered in the wrong way. And so James here at the end is bringing him back to what they ought to be seriously um, engaged in. Well, he did that earlier. So we think at the end of chapter one with... Uh, you know, true religion, taking care of orphans and widows in, in their distress. Uh, and also chapter two, where you're taking care of, uh, you're not just talking about your faith, you're actually um, helping people that are in trouble, people who are hungry and, and, and needy. But here at the end, he returns to that in, in, in a way. Um, because look, when you are oppressed, when you are banished and exiled and afflicted and suffering, you can't do it on your own. Uh, you, you need 
other people, especially during times of persecution and oppression. You think of uh, you think of Bonhoeffer and his little book Life Together, written from a man who was exiled and imprisoned, and the way he had to uh, gather together those prisoners together regularly, otherwise they would lose their minds. Uh, they uh, they would you know descend into into depression and and uh, and all the rest. Uh, so here you have um, a reordering of the community so that those who are sick and afflicted and suffering have uh, a ministry are ministered to uh, and are able to get through uh, the trouble that they are all experiencing. Last time around, we were looking at verse um, seven and how that James is encouraging his readers to really to get on with the ordinary things, um, to follow the example of the farmer who sows, sows the seed, does what he needs to do, and, and then just waits for the precious fruit of the earth, um, waits for the rain. And um, you made the comment, I think, Jeff, that um, here are people who quite rightly want to see justice and want to see their vindication. And yet the way that's going to come about is by fairly ordinary means, um, by them being peaceable, gentle, patient, not grumbling, etc. you know, fairly unglamorous stuff. And um, I, I wonder if, if we can say the same thing about verse 13 onwards. Now, that's not to deny the miraculous qualities of either God's judgment or of God's um, healing. But nevertheless, the call here in verse 13 onwards isn't, and I think you make this point in the commentary, Jeff, um, isn't to seek out some known healer or some great person with gifts of healing, but to pursue healing and restoration in, in fairly ordinary ways to call for church elders, which every church is is going to have to anoint with kind of oil, which is in and of itself ordinary oil to confess sins. These are fairly just kind of basic Christian um, uh, virtues and, and resources. Um, and, and yet, remarkable things um we, well we're to be expectant i think on the basis of these verses for remarkable things to take place through them yeah i like that i think that's right so are we are we uh, together with on the notion on the argument that this is uh, somewhat sacramental not you know not in the big sense of the two sacraments baptism lord's supper but the anointing with oil is more than just um, medicinal. Uh, ancient world, of course, used oil for medicinal purposes. But here, the fact that the elders of the church are called and pray over him using the oil, uh, that there's something more symbolic uh, in that ritual than just uh, hoping that the oil will have some medicinal value. And even if this is... Um, about those who've suffered in this persecution or those who've suffered in their uh, engagement with their persecutors in a sinful way. It, it, the way this is written certainly um, gives, gives authorization to elders and Christians 
in the church today to do this kind of thing uh, because you have the same sorts of, in terms of experientially and emotionally and psychologically, you have the same sorts of things that happen to everyone when they're sick. Everyone when they're sick, especially if they're segregated from uh, the congregation, uh, begin to wonder whether uh, they're suffering because of their sin, uh, some sort of tit for tat that God is doing to punish them. Everyone begins to wonder about their salvation, whether they're, they've been uh, disinherited uh, and uh, they're, they're no longer with the assembly. And so they think maybe they've been uh, abandoned by God and by his people. Uh, that leads to a great many doubts about uh, everything. And here, what happens is when you call the elders of church and they come and pray and anoint him with oil, and oil is, you know, a symbol of the Holy Spirit and the glory spirit being um, being applied on the head of the person in the name of the Lord. You know, you're still the Lord, you still belong to him. Uh, and you pray, and the one who's sick uh, is then restored to their understanding that the Lord will raise him up. Whether that's about raising him up from his sick bed, you know, here and now, or ultimately, of course, we're all going to get sick and die. That happens to everybody. And so uh, a confidence that there will be a resurrection of the dead and the Lord will raise him up. Um, and if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So, I, I, I mean, I, I do believe that this gives us some uh, a pattern for how to work with those who are sick, especially those who are uh, shut-ins, who are not able to be part of the church, to go to them or to have them delivered even by wheelchair to the church uh, and experience this is a, is a great, and I've, I've seen this happen many times, it's a great uh, support and encouragement to people in that kind of distress. Right. And a lot of that theology um, is built right into the olive plant, the olive itself, olive oil itself. I mean, uh, the olive plant is a symbol for God's people, but then how, how do you get olive oil? I mean, it literally the, you know, the book of Exodus uses the words that you have to beat these things down. The oil is beaten out of these uh, olives and then is used for uh, light and for burning. There's an ascension there. It's used in the, in multiple sacrifices, so for the for the olive plant to be glorified, it needs to be beaten down and and wrung out like these Christians in the in this book that we've been studying for for months now. The olive plant is beaten down, it's wrung out, and then it's used for something that is glorifying, for something that is used to anoint priests, for something that is used in sacrifices, which is tied to the com, uh, committing of sins and the forgiveness of sins. And then, uh, you know, smoke and, and light goes up and out. It, it ascends. It's a, it's a glorifying thing. But the only way to get that glorifying presence of the olive plant is for it to be broken down and beaten down, which is what these, you know, James's hearers have, have gone through, are going through. And so a lot, a lot is built right there into the olive plant. We might also see this anointing as not just assuring the person that they are still part of the community of faith, but actually setting um, their struggle with sickness or ill health or wound or illness of some 
type in the framework of Christ's battle and defeat against and defeat of death, that they are entering into that battle in a very key way. And so the church is anointing them for that struggle, um, setting them apart, preparing them, uh, equipping them and presenting them as a sort of champion going out to battle in some sense. And often when we think about sickness, we see it merely in terms of taking us away from um, the pleasures of life, the communities that we enjoy and setting us apart for a while. Maybe we're on the bench for a certain period of time, but this is almost, you can see this as preparing a person to go out into the field for battle and they are being, um, in, they are engaging with the great enemy. And as they do so, the church recognizes that the central reality of the Christian de destiny is at stake here. This is a person who's facing the reality of death, and they must be assured of Christ's presence with them in that point, in a special way, that this is that point where we feel a renewed sense of the presence of Christ and of our union with him. And that anointing is a reassurance of our sharing in Christ's victory, even as we face the foe that is the greatest of all. So the sickness here seems to be connected in some way with sin. If he's committed sin, verse 15, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins or confess these sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Um, again, we have to say that uh, all sickness is not the result of particular sins. Of course, we have Job as an example of that. Jesus also talks about the blind man in John 9. So, and disciples say, which, who sinned, his, father, his parents or him? And, and Jesus says, no, that's, that's not the right question. But, and I've noticed this in my ministry, sometimes people make really bad choices in life. Sometimes they drink too much. Sometimes they smoke too much. Sometimes they engage in foolish behavior that might lead to an injury. And, and in those cases, to have a ritual like this, where you don't even have to confront people about it. I mean, they, they, they kind of know that they've done something that's brought this upon them. Uh, it doesn't have to even be made public. Uh, sometimes as a pastor, people will privately say, well, I just, I, I really should have stopped this behavior a long time ago, and I know I'm paying for it now. I say, well, that's, that's a confession of sin, and let's, let's go to the Lord and pray about it and, and uh, anoint you with oil or whatever. So I don't want to, I think we need to be careful. A lot of people carry around in their sickness, in their affliction, guilt, about and and whether the connection is whether there's a causal connection or not um sometimes there is and i think it's important for us when we do this ritual not to forget or not to leave aside confession and confession of sin and to have something there for people have a uh either responsive or or some sort of uh Precomposed prayer for people to pray, um, so that we can 
pronounce absolution uh, in the name of Christ, and so that they can know that if they have sinned, uh, they are forgiven. One question I'd be interested to hear everyone's thoughts upon is the reference to three years and six months for the drought. That's not something, to my knowledge, that we find anywhere within the text of First Kings. Now, we can imagine that being recorded in some other document and um, preserved to the time of James. But that detail in this context, which is not, to my knowledge, a biblical detail, um, is a curious one. Three years and six months is not a random period of time. Um, Elsewhere, we have three years and six months or 42 months presented as a a very significant period of time within Revelation and elsewhere. It's the same as the time times and half a time. It's also the same as the number of days that are given. Um, So this is a significant period of time, and it's connected with coming judgment um, or a period of judgment. What do you think we should make of that particular detail why do you think james mentioned it here any thoughts on where he got it from i don't know where he got it from i wonder if there's any connection alistair with revelation 11 where uh you have um the two witnesses that uh uh, and they're called two olive trees two lampstands um and it says in verse six, they have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood, to strike the earth and every kind of plague as often as they desire. Um, and of course, the beast comes up and, and wars against them and kills them. And then later on, uh, it says that, um, where is it? Yeah. Verse 11, after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them um, and so on. So there is this three and a half. Well, you guys, you Alistair and James, you guys know all these numbers. You're the numerology experts. Why three and a half? There's something there in, in 1 Kings 18, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, but that doesn't quite answer the the question. Yes. um, Three and a half is a broken seven. It's half um, of seven. So that's one of the first things that might come to mind. Um, We could also think of the ways in which it is a falling short, perhaps of a, um, of the full pattern of seven in that, in that regard, um, that it's also something that occurs at key other occasions. We can think about the final week divided in half in the prophecy of Daniel in chapter nine. Um, there are many references to the numbers 42, 1260, a time, times, and half a time in the prophets, in the prophecies of Daniel. And we can think about the 42 generations in the beginning of, of Matthew. It's a common number 
And so it gains some significance just by virtue of its common repetition and the various associations that like a snowball, it picks up along the way through scripture. Um, but I think the primary root meaning would be it is a broken seven. It's um, and in that sense, it's half a week um, rather than a, a full entrance into Sabbath. So at the beginning of the week, he prays fervently and it doesn't rain. And then in the middle of the week, he prays again, and it does rain. So in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven, there is um, there's relief. There's there's something happens, something changes, um, and and why and how would that how would that help these folks? How would that impact them? What what should they take from that? that they are in a period uh, where it is not raining, um, and yet uh, there will be a time when the rain will come and, the, and then the, uh, the harvest of righteousness will begin, will begin again, something like that? There are a number of ways that it might be of encouragement to them. First of all, the idea that this is a time, uh, time times and half a time, um, brings all the memory of these past prophecies to mind, that this is a defined period within God's purpose. This isn't just persecution overwhelming God's purpose. This is something that was always part of God's plan. Um, also, that it's a limited period of time. It's not a full week even. This is half a week. And this half a week is also leading up to the fullness um, can think maybe back to the prophecy of Daniel and other references where that three and a half is a period of ju bitter judgment and testing, but it's also leading up to a climactic victory. And so those associations by themselves, I think, would be great encouragements to them um, and encouragements to pray towards what's taking place. Um, may also think back to the story of Elijah in the bringing of the rain in the context of the great defeat of the prophets at um, Carmel, um, that there is a climactic vindication of Elijah's ministry in the context of the ending of this period of drought. In addition, um, Jesus in Luke 4 references this, and he does reference the time. He says in verse 24, I, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And this is what I find beautiful and fascinating. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And in that story, uh, in, in 1 Kings 17, you not only have that story with Zarephath, but you have the association with oil and that the drought won't last forever. So he, he, Elijah says to her, he asks uh, for her to make him a cake. And then he says, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. So he's promising her that your oil will not run out uh, before relief comes which is beautiful and fascinating in this passage in James, because you have that association with oil and the promise of resurrection right here. Yeah. I, I wondered about all this too. I mean, my, 
guess is very much a guess. But I mean, if you think that a lot of the prophetic references to three and a half years have some kind of fulfillment in AD 70, um, then it may well be that a lot of Jewish Christians, especially those who are closer to um, Jerusalem, may have experienced some pretty tough times lasting three and a half years. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doubtful of the extent to which that period can be got from historical records like Josephus and, and, and so forth. I've, I've tried to reconstruct some of it and I, I can never get it to come to that close to three and a half years, but it, it may be that there was a, a period of persecution of that kind of length. And I have then wondered if as a result of the prayers of these persecuted Jewish believers in James, if as a result of those prayers, they themselves will have to suffer for that kind of period, just as Elijah did, you know, he was caught up in the famine like everyone else was. Um, and if then their relief will come at the climax of that, it's a, uh, it's a guess, but yeah. You might think about the way in which it talks in Mark of the days being cut short of tribulation for the sake of the, the elect. The tribulation does not last as long as it might have done. And so maybe what's being referenced there in part is the cutting short of a week of tribulations to just half a week. Um, it's not a full length of time. The other thing that I find interesting is just reflecting upon the associations with the story of, of Elijah and how Elijah would have been seen perhaps as paradigmatic for what's taking place at this period. Um, Elijah in the drought, he's responding to a crisis within um, an apostate nation. They've just rebuilt um, Jericho in the few verses previously. There's abominations with Asherah and things like that. Um, but then he's also coming onto the scene. He is um, a Noah type figure. He's someone, there are lots of allusions back to the story of Noah in chapter 17 of First Kings. And he's, as it were, bringing a sort of inverse of what Noah did. Noah, in Noah, all the world was covered with water. Here, all the world is dried up from water, and there's just this one preservation of um, this prophet who's given water at the brook and then also fed by ravens. Um, and so the ravens and the protection of this one person and those around him who associated with him, we might think, the and then his ministry, ministry to the widow, I think is worth reflecting upon as perhaps a paradigm for the situation of the church during this period. Um, so you have the image of the woman going out into the wilderness and being supported in the wilderness um, in chapter 12 of Revelation. Are we supposed to see something of the story of Elijah in the background there? Should we deal with the closing paragraph? Yeah, sure. I mean, I I think probably like I was saying at the start i wonder if this is um the kind of danger that is going to be faced by people in the meanwhile you know in the waiting in the period um while believers are suffering and are trying to cling on and yet god's 
vindication of them isn't coming or at least isn't coming within their expected timetable and i wonder if this kind of wandering away is um is something that did go on historically and it, and is likely to happen and, and that therefore there is then a, a sort of special um call to and and reward for those who go after these um people who are, are wandering astray there's um i guess going to be a temptation in tough times as some people start to depart from the faith to think well you know i've got enough to worry about i've got enough on my own plate anyway to to you know i haven't got time to be worried about others and i wonder if this is just reinforcing that need for community and fellowship that actually has been present in all these um uh past verses yeah i think i think that's right so this the the wandering from the truth my brothers if anyone among you wanders from the truth again that i i still think that there's possibility that the brothers here are not just your ordinary christians but the uh, the leaders so if there's a leader a brother among you who wanders from the truth someone brings him back well wandering from the truth would be wandering from all of the admonitions and the warnings uh that james has given them all the all the errors all the misbehavior that he's been talking about and also wandering here in verses 19 and 20, that root word, uh, uh, hodos, uh, basically um, it's the air of, of it's, it's an erring way. It's, he's gone the wrong path. That harkens back to 1.8, where the person that won't receive anything from the Lord is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways in in his past so that you could read the entire letter of james as uh, an exposition of this double-minded man this christian who is who professes to live as a follower of christ but actually is following the wrong path not the narrow way but the wider way and, and is worldly and a zealot and all the rest that we've talked about. So uh, when I'm reading 19 and 20, I'm thinking the sinner here that's being brought back are the, are the guys that are actually leading the community in the wrong direction with their, uh, with their rhetoric, with their heated rhetoric, with their calls for aggressive violence. Um, and if you bring that person back, you will rescue his life from death. That might be read just literally. You know, he, this guy, if you don't get him back, uh, he's likely to die in some of these endeavors. And you'll cover a multitude of sins. Uh, you'll stop a great deal of sinning that would otherwise happen if this guy is allowed to run free and continue to uh, rile people up to do what's well, you know, what's, what James is talking about is being done in their communities. So obviously this has a broader reference. Of course, all these passages do about helping people who wander off the path and bringing them back and saving them, uh, delivering them. Um, but I think if, I think it could be read and it probably should be read at least in the first case 
in context with the rest of James. Yeah, I think that's helpful, Jeff, particularly the um, stress on wandering from the truth here, being maybe not solely, but primarily behavioural. I don't think this just has in mind kind of straying into some uh, particular odd doctrine to do with the the person of God or, or, or something like that, but yeah, has, has, has behavioral issues in mind, you know? So in conclusion here, in, in applying James to our particular situation, I do think that we in the West are experiencing the marginalization of Christians in education and culture and politics. And that that's accelerating. Um, faster than people might have imagined even 10 years ago. And that, and that leads to all sorts of temptations, I think, for Christians, and temptations which James addresses here, which can be applied, uh, you know, with the necessary adjustments to our day and age. And what James does, I think, is put up some guardrails, how we should not respond to the increasing cultural exile, if you will, that we're experiencing as Christians in America. So in the end, I list six different temptations. I summarize James with six different temptations. The first is that we need to be careful that we don't forget to listen to the words of Jesus about the true character of his kingdom uh, and how it's established in human communities. And I think this is the implanted word of chapter 1, verse 21, that disciples have heard, uh, that we've talked about throughout this uh, podcast, primarily being the Sermon on the Mount, but also all sorts of other ways that Jesus has expressed um, the true character of his kingdom that's easily forgotten. The second temptation, especially that dogs opinion leaders in the church is to fail to attend to our own personal growth and grace and our, our maturity. Uh, so we're engaged in public teaching and, and leadership. Um, and we can easily uh, talk a good talk, but um, misbehave in private. You know, when, when you get to the end of chapter three, you realize that these brothers have their misbehavior is not uh, insignificant. It's shocking, actually. They're they're engaged in zealotry and selfish ambition and anarchy and vile practices and covetousness and murder and violence, pride, uh, which is all a kind of idolatrous spiritual adultery. Um, so, you know, we need to be careful as those who speak, as those who are pastors that we don't fall into that trap. The third temptation is that we want to cozy up to our enemies thinking we can win their favor. And if we can just get them to like us, then they'll leave us alone. And that's the partiality problem in James 2. And it's not simply about favoring the rich over the poor. It's very clear that these rich in James are identified as their oppressors, the ones who drag them into court. And it's very clear that they're, some of them at least want to appease them uh, so that they might find some relief. And that's not the way of uh, 
bringing in the righteousness of God. The fourth thing, uh, maybe the most insidious, is uh, use the power of our words to guide the church toward aggressive and violent action um, and thinking we're somehow then, therefore, agents of God's justice. Uh, that's that's one of the main problems in James. We've talked enough about that. The fifth temptation, um, if we do have a passion for changing the world, and we should, is not to lose heart, not to grow impatient when God doesn't act according to our timetable. And so James at the end gives us these examples of patience and suffering of Job and of um, of Elijah. Um, and and uh, also reminds us that we should expect God to bring judgment on his enemies, uh, but maybe not the way we think it's going to happen and when we think it's going to happen. Uh, we need to we need to trust him for that. And then the last one I, I bring up is um, him commending um, instead of inflammatory rhetoric that leads to violent action. No, uh, special care in the community toward those affected by the tribulations. You can go to James 2 and say that the brothers and sisters who are uh, afflicted with poverty there, uh, you don't just talk to them, you help them. The orphans and widows are probably those orphans and widows who've been made such by the persecution. We know that lots of brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and fathers and mothers had been imprisoned, had been tortured, and Paul even talks about how many of them have been executed. Well, what do you do? Will you take care of those who are left? What about those who are suffering and afflicted? We talked about that in this podcast. And all of those, all of those actions seem like nothing, seem like, you know, a nothing burger to... <laughs> a modern person who wants to do something now, to say something loudly. Um, and, and, and yet the Christian community needs to take comfort and to trust that when they live faithfully, when they pray earnestly, when they take care of one another, that there's a power there that goes way beyond politics and political theater. Um, and that, I think, is a big lesson for the church today. And that's, I believe, how the Christian church triumphed over the Roman Empire. It seems like the early church heeded the advice, the wisdom of James, and through their patience, they resisted the temptation to respond with violence and Jesus' righteous kingdom uh, began to take shape. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. 
that's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.